Well, welcome in everyone uh, to the next episode of of Crossword. This will now be our eighth episode, and uh, we are coming in on the second half of Hebrews chapter six. We left off uh, with the first half. We intended to do the whole chapter, and we just didn't get all the way through it. So this week we have Shane Johnson back with us uh, to finish up the chapter and. Um, we're going to have some fun with it. Shane thinks that the first half is the more interesting half. I think the second half is the more interesting half. So <laughs> we're going to have some, we're going to have some fun here. Uh, say hi, Shane, by the way. Hello there, everyone. So we're, we're, uh, we're going to start off with just reading the second half here in, in Hebrews chapter six, we left off at verse eight. So we're going to pick up at verse nine. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you have so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, that which it is impossible for God to lie, and we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So do you have any opening thoughts to start us out with, Sean? Uh, Shane? Sean, <laughs> call, you, Sorry, call Shane. you Tom. Call you Tom. <laughs> How long have you known me? Yeah, no man, kidding. Man. <laughs> All right. So my opening thoughts. Well, hmm. You know what came to mind right away? When we were little kids, you know, and you needed to... Uh, you needed to really convince your buddy that you were going to do something. So you had to swear on your mother's grave. Remember that? Mm. And that, that made me think of this passage. Or this passage made me think of that memory because, you know, I guess as a kid, you could think of nothing greater than your dear mother. So you swore on her grave when yep. you were trying to tell, convince people you weren't lying. Yep. And uh, God here, he, uh, he swears on the highest authority, which is himself, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I was a kid, it was, uh, if, if my friends wanted to know if I was serious, I said I was dead dog serious. I don't oh, know yeah. why that was a thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that, that was it. If I said, I'm, I'm dead dog serious, people <laughs> were like, oh, man, he's not making this up. So, <laughs> there was know. also... Pinky swear. Pinky yes. Swear. Yeah. Okay. Cross my heart. Hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. All that <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Okay. So let's start off with this, this first little section here. Uh, verse nine. 
Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. So uh, in, in opening uh, this evening in, in these thoughts, um, I'm, I, I'm really just, uh, so, so this is, is of course contrasted to the previous section, which we listened to. And if you don't know what we're talking about, then head back to the previous episode where we discovered the, or d- discussed the first half of this section. Um, this is in, in direct kind of, um, so as he was talking about the previous section, I'm talking about um, maturity in, in the faith and, and making sure that, uh, that you are in the faith or making sure that your life is, is living out in a way that, that you will uh, obtain rewards uh, rather than just waste uh, your life in, in the faith. Uh, he's, he's making the contrast here, though we speak in this way, that's what this, that this is talking about, that previous, yet in your case, the people he's writing to, beloved, we feel, uh, we feel sure of better things. So of course he, he's mentioning he's sure that they're that they're saved. He's sure that they're um, wanting to live rightly in the faith, um, which of course I think gives us some real context context into Hebrews that though he's writing to them as a people who have been um, maybe we'd say wooed back to um, or or are feeling wooed back to uh, Judaism to to pre-Christian Judaism faith. Um, he's, he's saying, you know, we're, we're sure that, that you are of the children of God. Um, so, so he, he's not necessarily writing this in response to people who, who he thinks aren't saved. He's writing this to people who he's, he's pretty sure are. Yeah. He's writing to people who are saved, but the people who are discouraged mm-hmm. or disillusioned, which is actually worse than discouragement mm-hmm. and tempted to uh to turn back or go back or to stop to stop following god and uh he's written this letter to to you know as a mayday call as a as an emergency measure to get them moving again and uh and pick themselves back up uh what's it say in chapter 12 to strengthen the the feeble knees and the the arms that have fallen down something like that so this is a a people who've been discouraged probably by the massive persecution that they Mm -hmm. faced yep and and he says in verse 10 you know god remembers your labor of love that you've shown towards his name that you've ministered to the saints and you still minister to the saints so they haven't given up i think they're tempted to give up and that's why he's he's writing this yeah for sure the other thing we have to remember, do you, do you, in, in your previous studies and, and uh, investigation, have you uh, really found anyone who's, who's kind of come to a more solid date on when this was written? No, this is one of those ones you just have like two or three theories and they all have equal, not equal merit, but some merit, right? Mm-hmm. As to who wrote it, mm-hmm. you know, was it Paul? Was it Barnabas? Um, those seem to be the two bigger ones. Maybe Apollos is the third. And then when uh, the temple has not been destroyed yet, 
is usually the consensus, right? Yeah. And that's why there's such a temptation to go back because though it says in chapter five, those priests who stand daily ministering at present tense, not who stood daily ministering, right? Yeah. So, um, it's important to keep that in mind that, that at this time of, of writing, there probably is still a temple. So um, it, it wouldn't even quite be the same as, as writing to modern day uh, Orthodox Jews who it, it's more of a vestige of an old faith. Uh, this is at the time of his writing a, a very active one. So it is a very active warning, a very active mayday against uh, something that, that really does hold a lot of sway over these people's hearts. Uh, verse 10 there, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Of course, he's, he's drawing back to here is um, he's making a, a qualification on that previous statement uh, in verse nine, things that belong to salvation. So what things is he talking about? What are those things that belong to salvation? Well, God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his name in, in serving the saints, as you still do. So he's, of course, qualifying. And I think we can even uh, look back at that the first half of chapter 6 as well um, in this qualification. He's, he's qualifying that you guys are, are showing those qualities that are, are necessary for us to be sure that salvation is, is rested in you. And of course that, that needs to apply to us as well, that we need to be careful that we're people who are marked by uh, the love that we have shown for his name in serving the saints and, and the work that we do. Yeah. It sounds like he wants uh, for them to, show in verse 11 show the same diligence as to realize a full assurance of hope until the end you know show it i take it as show it to the world show it to others show that you're saved you know you profess salvation you claim salvation you know demonstrate salvation um shine like a light in a dark world so when we draw back from god and when we are sluggish as it says in verse 12 when we give up we're not showing diligence we're doing the opposite and uh, therefore it sends a mixed message to our world that christians aren't a very good advertisement of the hope that's set before us mm -hmm. it, it, the, those sorts of things the way that we conduct ourselves they really are um I think just as important as the words that we're saying, because they're really the things that give evidence to what we're talking about. Um, and, and I mean, you know, James will, will refer to it as uh, you know, you believe that Christ is the son of God, you do good, but even the, the demons believe in, and tremble. And so his statement in saying that is that's great that you believe that he's the son of God, but, but believing isn't what gives evidence the simple belief alone it's, yeah. it's that, that with with true belief comes the outworking um and it's not that uh, it's, people get mixed up with that i think it's not that james there or or anywhere in scripture is saying that your works are what save you but rather the statement that 
if you truly believe, then works will follow. Works are, are just the um, outworking of, of, of your faith, just as, you know, when, a, when a, a gas engine burns fuel, you get exhaust out of the, the exhaust pipe. It's not that exhaust is what makes your car go. It's just proof that your engine is running. It's, it's a natural byproduct. It's the same sort of thing with works in our, in our belief. If we truly believe that Christ is who he says he is, then we won't be things like, as you said, in verse 12, there, referring to um, that you may not be sluggish. We won't be sluggish in our faith. If we truly believe what Christ has said, if we truly believe the urgency in which he said it, then we we will have those works. We will have, as scripture refers to it in other spots, that fruit of the spirit, that, that um, evidence that the Holy Spirit is, is in us. I hear you. And, and I think I agree with you. I just want to make one proviso. Mm-hmm. It's not guaranteed, I don't think, that we will show fruit or works, especially when it comes to other people looking at viewing at our lives. Uh, the Corinthians didn't show fruit for some time and Paul had to chastise them and get them moving again. Here we have the Hebrews, you know, they weren't showing much fruit either. So it's a mixture of being saved and wanting to grow and maturing, which I think is the thrust of this passage. So I do get a little frustrated sometimes when we generalize it too much that uh, only those who are living like the Apostle Paul prove they're saved. I think there's a huge gap in between with a whole bunch of stuff going on. People who have become discouraged or fallen out or going through hard times or haven't had proper discipleship or they're too young in the faith. So for that fruit to really manifest itself, which I think is the witness to the world and the evidence to the world of, you know, that our faith has substance. uh, I just don't know if, that fruit appears so readily and it can be confusing to people when we, when we say it, it comes right away. Yeah. And it's not to say that, that every Christian is going to be like Paul, but that's of of course, like, let's, let's be realistic. Um, But, but I I certainly think there needs to be something. Um, And that can show up and that can show up in, in different ways. It, it, it's not necessarily that that everyone who's saved is going to be this hardworking person dedicated to the church. They were saved, and then all of a sudden they spent the rest of their life in the church, and you know they they kicked their addiction and and all this stuff, right? Like those are are really they're more rare stories, and there's a reason for that. Um, so I, yeah, I I see what you're saying, and I. Yeah. Thanks for the clarification. I, I certainly don't want to say that everyone who's saved is, is going to be, um, you know, like super Christians. Yeah, like if, if my children aren't showing an interest in Christ, interest in spiritual things or any um, change, you know, it does obviously make me question, did these things really sink in? Do you truly believe these things for yourself mm-hmm. or have you just sort of absorbed them because you lived in my house? Um, so I think that's true and real, but I just want to say, you know, just because somebody's struggling or isn't showing the fruit that we think they should be showing by this time, yep. we could be wrong. We're not the best at fruit inspection. It's, no, it, it's part. true. It's yeah. true. And I'm, I'm really glad we're getting into this discussion because I think it is important. Um, cause I, I think 
I think there is a tendency sometimes to be a little bit too much on the judgmental side. Um, The fruit of the spirit in scripture is given to us for twofold reasons. Uh, One, and I think first and primary is for self-reflection. If you look at your life and you're not reflecting any of the fruit of the spirit, you're not showing any fruit of belief, then scripture would say, you need to analyze your own life. You need to analyze your faith and, and see if it's genuine. So I think that's, that's the first and primary uh, purpose behind it. But secondly, I think there is an element of it's not in our hands to make that judgment, whether someone is saved or not. That judgment belongs to God and to, to the individual believer. Um, that's yeah, a verse I, a verse I like for that one. Sorry to interrupt, but it's really good. No, no. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 20. God knows who are his, right? The foundation of God is sure, and he knows who are his. But let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. It's kind mm-hmm. of interesting, yep. side by side. Yeah. I think, I think that judgment belongs to God alone, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And, and we are not in a place to make that judgment. However, where I think fruit of the Spirit comes into application for myself is if I look at someone and I don't see any fruit in their life, then I can come at them at the approach that they need to be restored to Christ, either for the first time or further. And yeah, see, that, that's where I reserve, I reserve judgment. I don't know if are they saved and backslidden uh, or are they not saved at all, right? So, right. And so at the end of the day, um, I'm going to, this is, this is <laughs> I hope it doesn't sound rude, but at the end of the day, if, if you're not showing fruit, I'm going to treat you as if, I need to preach you for the first time because hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully I'm wrong. You are saved. You don't need to be preached to. And, uh, and I can come out of this being wrong and you're going to heaven. The other approach is I don't see any fruit in your life. I see you've made a profession. I assume that you're saved. I go in my whole life assuming that you're saved. And then it turns out you weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would rather err on the first side than the second side. Um, that's just a personal thing, um, perhaps. Yeah. But. yeah, we all have to navigate these issues for sure. For sure. And there are issues. Um, but, but he's, he's certainly saying about, uh, about these ones that, um, he's, he's positive, um, that he's yeah. sure that they're in salvation. And, and of course, um, to, to justify, to, to go back to what you were saying as, as well, to, to further emphasize that um, he is saying at parts that, that there are things that are lacking in yeah. their lives. I was just sort of thinking in my head there, why don't I approach this passage like I do to a Christian I meet on the, in the church who says they're saved, but shows no fruit. Right. Mm-hmm. So in verse 11 there in 12, He's saying, you know, uh, I see some fruit in your life. I see that uh, also some sluggishness, some dull of hearing, as it says in chapter five, verse 11. Mm-hmm. I see yep. you're a babe right now. So he's, he's really not challenging them to get saved again. He says, look, I know you're saved. That's verse nine. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you were just mentioning you run a yep. error on the side of caution, right? But yep. sometimes... You, you know, you've yep. checked. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and somebody, they, are saying, they are saying they're saved and they have shown some yep. change. Yeah. So yep. then you got to take it from that angle say, okay, you know what? You're telling me you're saved, but now you need to move on. You need to mature. 
-hmm. You need to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, right? Yep. And that's what he was talking about uh, as well in, uh, in chapter five, when he's talking about, you know, um, meat versus milk as well. It is moving on from those, those elements. I think it was chapter five. Was it chapter four, chapter five? Chapter five. Uh, yeah. Chapter five. So he's talking about moving on from those elementary uh, things of, of Christ and, and moving into the deeper. Um, certainly again, I think, I think we can be, we can cause a lot of issues um, in people's lives by casually assuming things. Um, even if they are saved, even if the individuals um, are in Christ, if they're not showing that fruit, then what he's saying here is, is like, there's another level to your faith that you could be in. Absolutely. And you have to move there. Yeah. There is no going back and there is no staying still. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he's, he's trying to push them to, to that, to that next stage. If you live in obedience, there's a greater reward. There's a greater joy. There's a greater peace. There's there's a there's a, a greater um, um, measure of of um, faith in in some respect for you. There's there's a there's a greater communion uh, yep. with with Coming Christ. If yeah. if you put away those, those things, put away uh, the sin in your life, put away um, these, these old uh, traditions and, and things which, which have no power to save, which have no power to build your life towards Christ. We, we need to move on. So uh, in the, the, um, in the thought, the vein of, of moving on, <laughs> you must move on yeah. you cannot stand on this verse because we're not getting another week on this chapter that's right yeah that's right so so we'll move on to verse 13 um for when god made a promise to abraham since he had no one greater to by whom to swear he swore by himself saying surely i will bless you and multiply you and thus abraham having patiently waited obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is final and confirmation so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of, of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, that which is impossible for God to lie, we have, who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope that is set before us. So here um, the author is is really going after um, their, that, that Judaism part, for sure. Uh, and he goes right after the figurehead, uh, the forefather of, of all of them. And he's saying, you know, even, even Abraham, even Abraham um, yeah. in the, the promise. If there was a Mount Rushmore in Scripture, Abraham's face would be on there. That's for yep. sure. Yep. <laughs> Moses. Yep. David. <laughs> and he, he already went after Moses, right? Like, yeah, he already went after Moses and, and uh, now he's, he's going after Abraham. He's, he's, you know, and he's, he's kind of systematically saying those things. And it's, it's really, it's really interesting that he, he goes into this thought process about oaths. Um, I was actually just uh, listening to some history on, on the Roman empire and, uh, 
it's really interesting that they had a series of kings. They had traditionally legendary. uh, They had seven of them um, before long before they became the empire, the Roman empire, they had seven Kings and, and the last of the Kings was very tyrannical. And the Republic after that uh, elected two consuls and they wanted to make sure that they never had another King. So they just made everyone swear an oath. And for them, that was good enough. <laughs> like in, in our modern culture, we're looking at like, Oh, Oh, okay. Like, so <laughs> people say stuff all the time and then go back on it. But, but for them, that was a big deal. And, and they took that seriously. And it was hundreds of years before uh, an emperor rose up. Um, and so, so they took that very seriously. And, and likewise, uh, he's, he's coming here as, as well that God swore an oath and it was so serious that he couldn't find anyone greater or anything greater. There was nothing greater than himself. So he swore it by himself. Yeah. You know, we got a promise making and a promise keeping God. Mm -hmm. And that the more you think about it is pretty special, right? Remember uh, promise keepers, that movement 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. you know, that was a good idea. Fathers, keeping their promises to their wives and to their children to to be home be available be family men not chasing money or chasing career or chasing uh, sinful pleasures but living for others and really the root of that is god himself he is the one who chose to make a promise swearing by himself nobody mm-hmm. There was nobody who made him do it. There was nobody who asked him to do it. Mm-hmm. And if we want to be his imitator, this is this is what we do. We we also uh, make promises to follow Christ, and we keep those promises to imitate Christ or whatever language we want to use. That's the idea. Mm-hmm. And it becomes to me even even more great and fantastic work. When you think the essence of a promise, the essence of an oath is accountability. If you don't keep it, you're accountable. And so the idea of an oath is you're always accountable to something or someone greater than yourself. Uh, And that's what keeps you accountable to that oath, to that promise. And so when God couldn't find anyone greater than himself to swear by, he's the only one holding himself accountable. So really, when you think about it, the fact that he swore a promise and then kept it having nobody to be accountable to if he decided he wanted to change his mind, like, but he doesn't, he never changes his mind. He, He keeps his word. He always, always carries through on his promises. And that is solely and exclusively by the merit of his character, by who he is. Think about people who take oaths, you know, the politicians, they swear an oath into office. Mm-hmm. I will serve the people and the country and I will uphold the constitution. You think of a doctor, he swears the, uh, is it the Hippocratic oath? I yep. think I'm saying it right. Yep. To so. practice properly and treat people with dignity and all that. Do no harm. Do no harm. Good. And, uh, you know, this is God. He swears the, uh, trinitarian oath that he will perform 
our salvation. He drew salvation's plan and he brought it down to man and the mighty gulf he did span and he did it all because he planned it and swore an oath that he'd do it and nobody held a gun to his head to do no it. he just did it no he just did it because because he wanted to uh and that makes that makes our salvation and that hope as as he's talking about there um that hope that we have not only is it sure because god swore by himself and he himself is unchangeable as the the book of micah says uh, he himself is unchangeable. He, he never falters. He never changes. He, he never um, alters. He never shifts. Um, so as unchangeable and eternal as he is, so too is that oath. But that hope is even more secure by the fact that nobody forced him to. He yeah. did it because he wanted to. He did it out of love. He, he did it because uh, he, he loved Abraham, because he loved the people whom Abraham would spawn. Um, and then he did it because ultimately through Christ, because he loved the world. You mean those nasty, stiff necked people who disobeyed again and again and again, killed all the prophets and murdered his son? Those people? Those people. Yeah. Oh, my. Oh, my word. <laughs> yeah, what a mighty, mighty God. <laughs> what an awesome yeah. God. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. And then uh, verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul that talking about the hope that is set before us there in, in verse 18 a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of melchizedek and really what the author is saying there is that our hope and our surety of our promise of the oath um that which which is uh, our guarantor uh, of of the promise the testament um, yes. is, is Christ it, who, you know, when I've heard people refer to, um, the ascension of Christ as the forgotten work of, of Christ. We, we spend a lot of time talking about his life and his death and his resurrection, but we spend little time talking about the ascension of Christ and why it's important. And really he's kind of getting right down to the nitty gritty on, on it right there. in in that verse is the reason why, you know, that a man can be in the presence of God and not be utterly destroyed is because Christ is there right now. Uh, he has already passed behind the veil. He is a man who is before the throne of God, who is God himself. And so he is that hope. He is that anchor. He is that surety that you know that through faith in him, you will one day get there. See, if I was going to take uh, your house from under you, Tim, I'd have to come Please with don't. the <laughs> I'd have to come with the title deed to your house and show you that you signed your signature mm -hmm. to the title deed over to me, and it'd be done. It, you couldn't fight against that. The signature seals it, and that's what this end of the chapter is. You know, verse nineteen and twenty. This is the. There were no signing contracts back then. That's that's a modern invention. But what God is saying is, I signed the contract. Jesus entered into the presence of heaven before you as a forerunner to prepare the way, which guarantees that you're coming in, right? The rope has been tied in the harbor, and the people of God will just be pulled in in time because the anchor is sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love, I love that imagery to me. This is, this is one of the, to me, uh, one of the, one of the greatest images in, in scripture is, is that idea that, that this is, is a sure and steadfast anchor. It, it's, it's such a strong word, <laughs> you know, the, these pieces of steel, which were dropped into the ocean uh, to keep a ginormous ship from moving, um, which if you understand anything about ocean currents is an extremely hard thing to do um, or to, to resist, I should say uh, the waves and, and currents. And yet these anchors were dropped and kept these massive ships from moving that moored them. Um, and, and so you get the same sort of, you get conflicting imagery here in the sense of you've, you've got um, water and, and the ocean, um, the sea, which in scripture often represents death, uh, judgment, wrath. Tumultuous um, times, yeah. Tumultuous times, yep. And the anchor, which is our hope, which is Christ, was dropped into the wrath and the ocean, in the sea. Um, and that anchor which was dropped into that for us now has moored us not to wrath and death and ocean mm. and sea, but is now no longer in those things and is placed in heaven behind the veil in the temple. And what he's saying here is stop desiring an earthly temple because <laughs> it's just a picture the real mm -hmm. temple is in heaven. The real yeah. temple is where Christ is now. Put your faith in him. Put your life in him. Put your stock in him. Put your future mm -hmm. in him. Put everything in him because that's where it is. Stop desiring the picture. And, and he's going to go into this where this is going to be basically the rest of this book is where he's going to break down images like the priest and the sacrifice and, and all those things. And, and he's going to start tearing those things down and saying, these are just images. They were just pictures of who Christ is and what he's done. And so this is, this is why this part of the, the book amps me up because it really starts into that uh, just busting down scripture uh, by, you know, these are just images. These are just pictures, things that, that were great in their time that were good, um, but they are now the, the realization is here. They were pictures that were pointing forward to something. And now the reality is here. Christ is here. And, and one day uh, our mooring is not in the earth, in the ocean. Our mooring is in heaven. And one day, as you said, that ship will be pulled into Harbor uh, into heaven. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you were saying there made me think of Hebrews 10, one, these, the law, this is just a shadow of good things to come. Mm -hmm. And the reality is Christ and what he is the true temple made without hands. You know, God mm -hmm. is, yep. God is brilliant. God is brilliant communicator. And he gave us a whole framework, a living model mm -hmm. on earth of what he was doing in redemption. Um, unfortunately we mix that up and made a religion out of the miniature model. Mm -hmm. So petty, uh, really we need to go to the, the ultimate or the um, what what the template represents so that we can embrace the reality which isn't seen it's embraced by faith um, 
which is so much better as Hebrew likes to, Hebrews loves to use that word so much better than the earthly temple and the earthly promises and earthly land and everything associated with it. And so there's, there's a great, there, there's another, uh, applic- application, a- applicable warning here for us, I think as well is, is that we don't do that with our current circumstances. We certainly aren't going to get into a lot of politics here right now. Um, but I think as, as Christians, we have a tendency to even do this with church and church becomes the building church becomes, uh, the Sunday service, which are of course, wonderful things. I'm, I'm not degrading those things, but that's what church can and has really in a lot of ways become. And then things like COVID come in, they start taking away those things. And we start realizing this building that we've built, this, this, um, this structure that we've built, that we've called the church. No, no, no. The, the church is the, the people and, and the church will function even if the building's closed. The, the, the people are still called to do what they're supposed to do, even if the government's telling us we can't do it. And so, again, this is where I'm saying we're not getting into politics because that is a very split on whether you should go to church in defiance of the government or not. I'm not, I'm not approaching that one. What I am saying is the actual idea of the church is the people. Christ didn't come to die for a building. Christ came to die for people. And so what he's saying is, you know, don't focus so much on the temple. The, the reality is Christ the same thing can be said for us in, in these times. Don't focus on the building. That's not the church. The bride of Christ is us. And the people outside of the building, the people who are still walking around out there who don't know Christ, those are the f- potential future uh, members of the bride of Christ. And that's where our focus needs to be. Um, anyways, that's, that's where I, I see a very applic- applicable thing. Oh, it's a good parallel for sure. For sure. I was thinking of Acts chapter eight when persecution came and they were scattered everywhere. I mean, they couldn't meet in the temple anymore. They couldn't even meet in homes anymore. Mm -hmm. The routine they were used to every Sunday was upset and they went everywhere gossiping the gospel or preaching the gospel and new churches formed and new patterns of worship. So the church can go on in any context, whether it's underground, above ground, whatever. Yeah. Um, well, thanks, Shane. Um, it's it's been really good. It's been a real pleasure again. Um, I really in, enjoy uh, having you on. You you give some really great perspectives. Um, so so I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I think uh, all of our listeners do. Um, thank you all of, uh, you out there for, for listening. We'll be back again next week. Um, did you have any, uh, closing remarks there, Shane? Oh, just, uh, you know, let's remember the, uh, push of this passage that we all need to patiently endure mm-hmm. until the end mm-hmm. that we may inherit the promise. And basically that's where we're at. We're in the middle of things and we got to patiently endure until Christ, our forerunner, pulls us home 
And uh, that's exciting to remember and exciting to live for as well. Mm -hmm. Amen, brother. Well, thanks again. Um, We'll hope to have you on again soon. And uh, as I said, we'll, we'll be back again next week uh, for chapter seven. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it'll be uh, Luke Mastrovic on next week. Um, So we'll uh, talk to you all again uh, soon. and, And thanks for listening in.